I have never, ever had a kid in my office say, you know, my parents just listen too much. Never. They always say my parents talk too much. And my advice for parents now, such as it is, um, is listen. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. My guest this week is Dr. Madeline Levine, a psychologist with over 40 years of experience as a clinician, consultant, educator, and author. Madeline is also the co-founder of Challenge Success, a school reform nonprofit affiliated with the Stanford Graduate School of Education and is a highly sought-after consultant, lecturer, and speaker on all issues related to parenting. You may be familiar with some of Madeline's books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Price of Privilege, which explores the reasons why teenagers from affluent families are experiencing epidemic rates of emotional problems. And then her follow-up book, Teach Your Children Well, tackles our current narrow definition of success. But her brand new book and what we're going to be talking about today is called Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. And I have to say, I think that Ready or Not is really the perfect book for what we're collectively experiencing right now. In our conversation, we talk about the ideas behind her book, what Madeline sees as the lessons and gifts of the pandemic why she thinks hope and optimism are the ultimate life skills, and more. Just like Madeline's book, this was a thought-provoking conversation for me. I hope you get a lot out of it. And as always, thank you so much for being part of this Tilt Parenting Revolution. If you want to stay in the loop about important news, new classes, and special live events, sign up at TiltParenting.com. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Madeline. Hello, Madeline. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Um, we haven't had a, done a podcast before, but we know each other. We've been in conversation. We've had lots of interesting conversations along with a lot of other folks about the issues we're going to talk about today. Right. I have to, I have to tell you, Deb, that I did really a thorough look at the work you've done, which, you know, I sort of know you from chatting, but I am stunned by the amount of work that went into um, the podcast, but also Tilt Parenting. And I, I really didn't have any idea how far reaching and important it was. So wow. that was a pleasure to find out. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, you have such an incredible body of work and, um, you know, you've written a number of, of really big books. You wrote an incredible book, The Price of Privilege. I think that was probably 2008, 2009, um, where you really pulled back the curtain on uh, the ways in which growing up privileged um, was actually resulting in a slew of emotional problems and hurting kids' healthy development. And you have another amazing book called Teach Your Children Well, where you talk about the short-sighted definition of success. And now you have this incredible book, which is so timely that we're going to be talking about today. It's called Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. So I would love if you could just tell us about that book and why you wrote it in the first place. 
So it's kind of an interesting story. I, I wrote it uh, for two reasons. Uh, the first one probably was my sense that while the other books I had written were very popular and there's a, a cadre of us, the people in our group, but other people as well, going out around the country with the same message, which is, you know, pull back a little bit. Um, performance is not everything. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other things that matter um, for kids to have good lives. And while individually I was feeling like I was making progress, the reality was that rates of mental illness did not go down <laughs> over the last 12 years, um, and 13 years now. As a matter of fact, they went up. And so I think part of it came out of a feeling of either, well, I'm done, you know, that's the best I can do. And it hasn't made a profound change. And also feeling like people were still eager to find out how they could do things differently and why they should do things differently. You know, nobody wants to feel that their kid is an experiment. So at the end of the day, I was still hearing well, you know, going to Brown can't hurt or Harvard sends all of its people into high paying jobs. And I knew because I had friends in business and in the military that there was really a shift in who was being hired. So I wanted to expand what I had to say from just, hey, look, you know, the 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 rates of anxiety and depression are unacceptable. And they're partly a result of the kind of culture we've set up. But now I had a lot of evidence that it wasn't only bad in childhood, it continued to be a problem because it wasn't good preparation for the kinds of jobs that these exact same people were hoping to get for their children. Mm -hmm. So that was the reason. It's like my last stab at, you know, my last stab at can we change the paradigm? The book came out three weeks before lockdown. So I wasn't prescient. I had no idea, like everybody else, that this was about to happen. So, you know, a lot of people assume that it started during COVID. It didn't. It was published three weeks before COVID, which meant that I didn't have a book. To, you know, everything got canceled around the publication of the book, but it was very, timely, as you say, um, in terms of the kinds of things people were going to need, not at the very beginning. At the very beginning, you just had to survive. You just had to figure out how you were going to live your next day because nobody knew. But, you know, as people adjusted to some degree, um, I think there was more interest in well, what else? What can I use this time for? I've got more time. What can I use it for? And I think and, the book answers that. Well, and also I feel like we spent the past now year and a half almost getting a really close up view of what anxiety looks like and experiencing it as adults, many of us for the first time. And mm -hmm. so it is just, um, it's just to me such an, an interesting time in terms of maybe this collective growth and maybe a deeper understanding of how pervasive and challenging anxiety and depression and other mental illnesses can be. So your audience can't see, I have a big smile on my face because I'm thinking if this is the first time you've had anxiety, 
you're lucky <laughs> because I'm, I'm somebody who's, who's quite anxious. You know, and there's a difference between having anxiety and having an anxiety disorder. And I, I think part of what happened here is that, you know, if you were a little anxious, you became really anxious. If you were a little dysphoric, a little depressed, you became, you know, wherever your cracks were in this period of time, they were heightened because the reality was nobody knew what to do. And it was interesting for me, Deb, in the sense that I was, you know, I must have given 30, 40 talks and everybody was looking for answers. And nobody really had answers, including experts, air quotes, um, because we'd never been through it before. So, you know, we had a lot of best practices around um, challenge and stuff like that. But the, the length of this, the life or death of this, the fact that there was no celebration, that we had defeated an enemy, there was only divisiveness in the country. So, yeah, I, you know, it felt to me like we were thrown into the deep end of the pool without water wings mm-hmm. or swimming lessons. So it was a hard time for everybody. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, so the you have a revised uh, edition of the book, which we're recording this at the end of May. But as listeners hear it, the book should be available or will right. be within a week or two. So can you tell us, were there some bigger changes that you wanted to make as you went through the book based on what we've been through? You know, not really. Um, so I needed I needed to write kind of a prologue and redo parts of the book because to ha- to ignore what we had just gone through seemed impossible to me. But the basics of how do you promote resilience? What goes into resilience? I, I listened to you and Michelle Borba uh, recently. Talk, you know, we're all talking about the same thing, which is, you know, it's great. Your kid gets into Brown or whatever it is. That's great if that's where that kid belongs. But the reality in life is there's an entirely different skill set that is protective both of parents and children, by the way. Um, everybody thinks I'm a child expert, and that's my training. But I really think I write to parents because, like, if we're not okay, our kids are not okay, and we all have different kids. You know, I know your area of expertise, but everybody has different kids, and not necessarily neurodiverse, but different. And you have to make all kinds of adjustments to that. And so this one-size-fits-all Uh, notion of success. It's outdated, period. And we've just lived through a period of time where people needed flexibility, where people needed curiosity. And if you were low on those skills, you had a really hard time, especially young mothers with younger children who had to work and be a teacher. And it was really, I think, close to an impossible task if you stuck with your old metrics. The bed's not made, the dinner's not cooked, the kid got, you know, didn't get a good enough grade. You stuck with those metrics, you were in for a very bad time. You know, the the prologue talks a little bit about, I really hope we've all learned something through this about what's important and what's not important. And the other thing I want to say about it is I also think there was a huge opportunity. And it's hard to talk about that in terms of the tragedy that it was. 
but I was just talking to um, my publicist and they were saying, you know, how do you, how are you positioning this as it goes out again? And they were doing all the things about high rates of mental illness and, and deaths of despair, opioid death, all the things that were wrong. And I think those things need to be acknowledged. But I also think it was an enormous opportunity for people to rethink the paradigms we are so attached to. Um, I'll bet you've decided to make some changes in your life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent, including a lot more baking. But beyond that, yeah, tons of changes. Yeah. For sure. Your your baking is as notable as anything any of us have done. It's like sometimes I look at your pictures just because it looks delicious. And it's like one day I'll get to have some of that stuff. Yes. Um, yeah. And I am not going to spend every week of my life on an airplane again, period. And I think thinking about what matters and how we allocate time has become incredibly, you know, I'm a lot older than you are. So it's like that has become incredibly important. So when they were doing all this thing about, you know, all the increases in bad stuff, I said, I think, I think we also have to attend to the fact that people had an opportunity to think more about how they want to live their lives. I don't believe we're going back to normal. I think, you know, my daughter-in-law's who work in tech, um, they'll be on some hybrid model. Everything I know is on some kind of changed model. And we're going to have to adapt to that. It's not going to be the same as as it was before. And, And I think the opportunity to think about what matters was a great opportunity. And I think one of the questions is, how do you maintain that going forward? Yeah, it's I mean a lot of the conversations I've had for the podcast for for this summer season have been surrounding education too and just mm-hmm. how this has given us an opportunity to really reflect on the different ways the kids learn and can express their, you know, abilities and competencies and and I hope that it shook things up enough that there's going to be more flexibility or more room for accommodations in the classroom to support different kinds of learners. Right. And I mean, you know about my project, Challenge Success at Stanford. So, you know, I co-founded that. That's, that stuff is very, very important to me because I, I, was, I started out as a teacher before, long before I was a psychologist. And it made no sense to me when I was 27, um, the way I worked inner city. And there were lots of kids with all kinds of issues. And one rigid curriculum, and nobody learned anything. And that was the hardest job I ever had was teaching. And the degree of respect I believe that teachers deserve is not an evidence as far as I'm concerned. You know, I don't like words like heroes, that's a job. But being forced to teach in this rather narrow range and you know, or you may not, I have three sons and, and they were incredibly different. Um, my first son was the straight A student athlete, school worked great for him. And my middle kid was extremely creative and school didn't work as well for him. And my third son was totally hands-on with some learning differences and it really sucked for him. So, you know, it was a, a living lesson in 
okay, maybe it works for a third of kids. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's small. And and there were plenty of kids, by the way, which I, I suspect you know, who did fine, who did better on distance learning. Mm-hmm. So I think there's so much to rethink in what we think the goal of education is and how many kids have been absolutely hobbled by the way education does not meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Challenge Success is working on that. Lots of organizations are working on rethinking that. Um, I just have one funny story. I said my middle son was very creative, and I never went up to school for my kids. It was like, you know, you can handle it, whatever it was. But he 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 was in middle school, and he wrote a story. Um, my mother, unfortunately, has had Alzheimer's for about 15 years now. And he wrote this story about an elderly couple, and the man thought his wife was Marilyn Monroe. And it was it was just so sweet and embedded in my family. Anyway, he got a lousy grade on it, and the teacher wrote on it, Marilyn Monroe was not alive when your grandmother was alive. And it's the only time I ever went up to school because it so missed the boat on the creativity and the curiosity and and thinking about what that's like for a child on an ongoing basis, not just this one story that I'm telling you almost 20 years later, but on a daily basis. So um, that needs to change and it mm-hmm. needs to change radically, not, you know, and I'm going to sound cynical because I've been doing this for a while. I'm not interested in putting SEL in a classroom once a week for an hour. That is not the solution to this. You know, even with SEL, it needs to be cross-curriculum. It needs to be embedded in culture. And that's the way we need to be thinking. We need to be thinking as revolutionaries, as radicals about how to change school. Okay, I was off on my school. No, I love the way you think. And listeners also, you know, I always have links on the show notes page for each episode. So I'll make sure that you guys can check out the Challenge Success uh, Program because there's a lot of good resources and research and content there. Um, no, I love that. You you can go go on a rant like that anytime. It wasn't a rant, <laughs> but I appreciated everything you said. Um, Thanks. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. 
Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So one of the things that you do is you outline what you see as the key traits for dealing with a tumultuous future including adaptability, mental agility, curiosity, collaboration, tolerance for failure, resilience, and optimism. So as I read that list, I think about the listeners. Many of our kids have more, I would say they're more in the fixed mindset camp than the growth mindset camp. And um, I just would love to hear your thoughts on on how possible it is uh, to help these kids who more who might be more rigid thinkers to become more agile and adaptable. I'll, I'll tell you, if I write again, it will be the seven myths of parenting. And that's one of them that you can't teach these things. And I, I don't know where this got started, this idea that you were either curious or not, you were either creative or not. So, you know, I'm interested, very interested in epigenetics, right? Epigenetics is that intersection of what you came into the world with, with your genetics and your environment. Do I think that all three of my kids were, I don't think they were all three equally came into the world with creativity. They had different levels of it. Kids have different levels of everything. But the environment at the end of the day is what, for all of us, expresses our genetics or not. We all have within us the possibility of anxiety, the possibility of depression, maybe the possibility of substance abuse or psycho. You know, the genetic pool is really big Mm -hmm. and an awful lot depends on the environment. So the idea that you can't teach creativity or you can't teach self-regulation, we try to teach self-regulation all the time, right? With varying degrees of success. Um, 
just because we know each other, I had my, I have a two-year-old granddaughter and I had her here for the week for four nights, my husband and I. And um, it's the first time I've had her for a period of time. And it was fabulous. She's fabulous. She also had a temper tantrum that looked like it came out of the exorcist to me. I mean, out of her mind, screaming and yelling and throwing. And, and I was looking at that. And in reference to your question right now, I know that that child who was terrifying in that moment will grow up to not do that. How? Because she's been taught a degree of, she's been taught over time and developmentally appropriately how to control herself. So this idea, this fixed mind idea that, you know, we'd all be still trying to parent screaming, yelling, you know, exorcist babies, and we're not. So most of our kids learn, some of your listeners uh, probably have kids who are more difficult to teach self-regulation to. You know, again, I think we ask so much of parents, um, the flexibility, the willingness to tolerate outbursts, the getting rid of all the shoulds. My child should do this at this, should do that at this point. That's not true for any kid or many kids, but it's certainly not, not true for neurodiverse children. But everybody who's listening had a child who once couldn't walk and they crawled. And then they started to learn how to walk. They stood up, they fell down. We didn't criticize them for falling down. We didn't say she's never going to learn to walk. We knew we had to ride the amount of time it took for that particular child to walk. Mm -hmm. In my house, my first kid walked at nine months, which we thought was great at the time. Wasn't so great. He had zero judgment and he was running around. Um, So I think we have pictures of the way in which we intuitively know that children need a period of time, that they develop differently, that we have to be okay with that, that we have to keep whatever anxiety we might have in check as best we can with some support around us. But children absolutely, absolutely change. Mm -hmm. And part of it has to do, so I'm hoping maybe this is of interest to your audience, I think in general, we spend way too much time looking at deficits and nowhere near enough time on kids' strengths. And I'm a basketball fan. They say you go to your right means go to your strong strong side. That's life. You go to your strong side. And the calls that I, not anymore, because I think people know my response that I get, I'd like to talk to you about my child. What's with your child? Well, she's got four A's and a C. And I know that that call is not about the four A's. Mm -hmm. It's about the C. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I think in my own life, and I always ask people to do this, think in in your own life. What were your strengths? What were your weaknesses? I was a very good English student. I was, I wrote well. I was a very mediocre math student. Guess what? I'm not a math teacher. Mm -hmm. And I mean, clearly tutors and support help are very useful. I think they're overused, by the way, in the general population, along things like that. Like nobody's good at everything. And so I think I think what kids need is some confidence 
How do they get confidence? Because you've noticed the things that they're good at and you've supported them and you're curious about it and you're interested and you listen. And, and I think that I, I think there's more being asked of a kid with diversity. It's just like more intense, but it's the same thing that we all have to learn, which is, you know, take pleasure in, in what your kid's good at and look at yourself. You know, were you great at everything? Probably not. And so why would you want your kid to do that? And if my parents had worried about my math scores, that meant I would have gotten a tutor, which was impossible in a working class family back then. But it would have taken the time away from reading and writing from me. So I was really glad they didn't. And I had mentioned my third kid had some reading issues And to this day, if he was talking with me, he would tell me I made too much of a big deal out of it at the time. It was, he's a lawyer now, so his language skills came in. Mm -hmm. They just came in really late. And I had to sit with that, you know, with two other kids who were extremely, and I'm verbal. So learning to live with the child you have. Mm -hmm. I used to say whenever I spoke that we all have two children. We have the child we expected and the child we got. Yes. And, you know, some people, there's alignment between that. And for a lot of people, they're very different pictures. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that is really at the heart of everything that I do within this parenting community is like learning to uncover all your own, like my own our own baggage or expectations or ideas or visions for what this should look like, or we thought it would look like, and just really focusing on the child that we have. And that is life's work right there. That's right. It's sort of like when I started out, I always said, see the child in front of you. You have all kinds of ideas of who that child's supposed to be. And to the extent to which you can't let go of that, and try and mold the child in that way, you've done a huge disservice Mm -hmm. to the incredible authenticity of every child. And I think you, you know what, I think you miss the pleasure of, if, if you're disappointed in the fact that your kid doesn't control himself so well, and, you know, sensory stuff bothers him, and they sort of blow up, if you're disappointed in that, You miss part of the best part of parenting, which is the uniqueness of what's standing in front of you and your relationship to that. So there's a lot for us to learn as parents in that. There's just a lot to learn. I remember my youngest kid, who was not a great student, wanted to be a fireman. And my, my history is my dad was a cop. My husband's a doctor. Surgeon, I want one of my kids should be a a doctor, not a fireman like my dad was. That was a hard life. And this is the one who became a lawyer ultimately. But there were years where that's what he wanted to do. And I had to learn, and that's my background, to see that in an absolutely wonderful, positive, interesting way, which meant a lot of why questions instead of what? Instead of what, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Why do you think that would be? Um, why do you think that's a good way to live, live your life? Um, why do you think you would stay interested in that? Just lots of why questions. I would say, too, just one thing to add. Um, I think about this a lot that 
differently wired children demand more of us as parents because we often have to be more like in the thick of it, advocating, mm-hmm. um, understanding, you know, how their brain works on a more detailed level than a parent of a neurotypical child would. And to me, that is a gift, you know, if we can mm-hmm. kind of lean into that and see, wow, this actually it might seem more challenging, but it also can create deeper connections sometimes or or push us to really grow in ways that we weren't expecting to. You know, I think it's interesting. You, there's always this choice about which side you're going to see things on, you know, so is it, oh, that's awful, I'm sorry, you know, or is it, what a great opportunity to to expand your parenting skills and expand your capacity for self-reflection. I think you do better if you fall on the side of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I do wonder about after thinking about this some more is how parents with neurodiverse kids refuel. If you have a kid who's less demanding, you refuel by going in your room or getting your nails done or going for a walk. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm curious to hear from you in this conversation, like what are the ways in which, you know, people in your situation, parents like you can extract themselves so that they can revive themselves. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after this quick break. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, you know, I don't know if you know this, Madeline, but I am really big into self-care and I, and I talk about it as these little small moments. And, um, certainly it's harder when our kids are younger 
because it can be harder to even find someone to watch your child. So you can't just necessarily send them across the street to the friend's house, you know? And so mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of parents who take advantage or try to find respite uh, care just so mm-hmm. they can have an hour to themselves to go grab a coffee and get kind of clear, clear their heads. And certainly community, like leaning on community and having your team of people that you can reach out to and, share, um, vent, uh, you know, do whatever you need to do to kind of work through that, that emotion. But yeah, it's challenging. And as I say all the time, it, it isn't an optional kind of a thing. Like it has to be a priority. And so I really encourage people for me, like I'm a podcast listener, not just a maker of podcasts, <laughs> but I consume podcasts. I'm a runner. I listen to podcasts while I'm cooking. That to me is self-care right there. You know, I, I find ways to weave in things that I know fill me up in different ways into everyday life. So, right. so that's what I do. And your point is well taken that when for everybody who has really young kids, your your time is hard to come by. And so to the extent to which you can uh, structure or normalize small things, although I do not consider your baking a small thing to all your listeners Debbie is the best baker in the world. (laughs) You're so funny. Um, Yeah. So the you know everybody thinks like self care is Canyon Ranch or (laughs) going away. I wish it was, but it (laughs) is not that for me. Right, Uh, and that's a one off thing. But if you don't sort of win something into your daily life, I think I think it's exhausting and. I don't know what I found through this. I'm a very unstructured person. And, you know, I write at two in the morning. And that's just when you have three kids, you find ways to find time for yourself. But I found actually that structure helped me through the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, which I had never had before. You know, and now if you try and take away my morning cup of coffee, I, you know, whoa, no, that won't work. It's sort of like learning the value of, a little bit of structure around taking care of myself, mm-hmm. half hour has really been good. So, you know, all the people who say structure is important, like Mark Kelly, the astronaut, astronaut senator, yeah. From, yeah, who talked about being in outer space and how he would have gone crazy if the day wasn't totally structured. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the kinds of things you learned through this pandemic because mm-hmm. I didn't have to be at the airport. And so I had time to think about things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to take a lot. You know, you said fixed mindset. That's a bad thing to have right now because it's exactly the opposite of what people are going to need to get through this period. You, you're going to have to believe that you can do this. You're going to have to believe that you can change, that your child can change, that education will change, that hiring will change. Or else you become fossilized in an expired paradigm that really, I mean, nothing could be clearer than what we just lived through. That flexibility and risk-taking and um, adaptability and resilience, all those things made this possible. Mm -hmm. And we've all done it. I mean, certainly, you know, it it has been ugly and there have been lots of very serious mental health challenges faced by a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. But we we most kids have have adapted. They have adjusted. That's they right. are doing it. And and that's, that's right. something 
I don't remember some guests I had helped me kind of reframe not to just say that we can do hard things, but we are doing something really hard. Right. And I I have a thing about brave families and I, I think bravery is critical. And what is, what is bravery? It's the willingness to confront challenge. It's not to hide. It's not to get into your squirrely places. It's to confront challenge. And I do think one of the outcomes of this for kids will be, I made it through. I got through. I know how to do that in the same way that, you know, how do kids learn anything? Like the baby, they got to fall down first. And, you know, you see the exuberance of a child when they take those first steps, like the world has been handed to them. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of kids I think there are a lot of problems. I don't want to downplay that. I think there really are a lot of problems. But I also think we've, we have a whole generation of kids, many of whom have made this through intact and have every reason to be proud. And their parents have every reason to be proud of that fact. And that will be a story. I mean, one of the things I would like people to do is to write their story. You know, generations from now, this is going to be in the history books for sure, right? Mm -hmm. The political, the social justice, the pandemic. I mean, it's just a confluence of things. And, you know, what's your story going to be? How are you going to tell? What's your narrative about how you got through this, what was hard, what you learned? Mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing to do. I agree. So in your book, you refer to hope and optimism as the ultimate life skills. This is something I'm just thinking a lot about and hearing a lot about and and reading a lot about. And so I'm just wondering what you see as maybe some of the most powerful ways that parents and caregivers can help foster a sense of optimism and and hope in our kids, again, having been through such a disruptive time. So I think I told you I, I was an anxious mom. So I was always saying to my kids, you okay? Whatever they would do, are you okay? That was my go-to response. And I think it was Michael, one of my kids pointed out to me, like, why are you always saying that? Like, we're fine. And so then I started thinking about the alternative to that, which is, you're fine, or I think you can do this, or you've got this, or, you know, and I think that language change is an important one, the kind of hovering, anxious, is everything okay? You okay? Um, I don't think serves kids and I think sets up a mindset around the world is dangerous. You got to pay attention to stuff. You're always in danger of being hurt. You know, this is for anxious, for all you anxious moms out there, switch it from, (laughs) from, are you okay to you've got this? Mm -hmm. Um, Because most of the times kids do have it. And if they don't, then you can come in and be helpful. But like, I have a whole section in the book on um, accumulated disability, how when we push our hypervigilance and hyperparenting, we make our kids very risk averse. And this is not this is not the time to have kids who shy away from challenge or risk, whatever you want to call it. So I think I think having a positive attitude yourself on a personal note. I'm a pessimist. I have read every book on optimism. I have every book on cultivating Seligman. You know, he's a positive psychologist. Mm-hmm. Has it moved my needle? 
not very much, but I but I'll tell you what did becoming closer, better friends with a couple of people who are profoundly optimistic. Mm. And so every time I would say something in my usual little bit of darkness, they would say, but Madeline, look at it the other way. And that has profoundly, profoundly changed me. So, you know, seek it out and then bring it into your home. It was nice to have people who were so positive. I can always find, you know, people who think there are all kinds of problems, but it was very refreshing for me to have close friends who are optimists. My son and I have been researching Martin Seligman's work and uh, looking into a positive psychology course on Coursera to just see what we can do to cultivate more of that. So super interesting. And also, I just to share as you're talking about this, my husband is the one who's always like, be careful, be careful. I mean, I'm like 16 is my kid, but you know, tripping on something, oh, be careful. And I think I just made the connection that that's an anxiety response. Oh, sure. Really connected. I was just like, why are you saying that? Now I get it. So thank Uh, you for that. (laughs) You're welcome. So um, let me just ask one last question then as we, you know, as this airs, we're going to be moving back into to school and whatever life looks like. And I'm sure you're getting asked this all the time, like any word of advice or something that we might want to bear in mind in order to best support our kids for a transition back into school. So I've been a psychologist for almost 40 years, which makes me like ancient. And I have never, ever had a kid in my office say, you know, my parents just listen too much. Never. They always say my parents talk too much. And my advice for parents now, such as it is, um, is listen. What you and your child, and if you have a partner, other children are going through should be a source of tremendous curiosity. Tell me about going back to school. What was it like? Not, not what test did you get? Not how'd you do? Not what party did you get? What was interesting about today? What did you learn about today? What was hard about today? Um, you know, stuff that's been around for Rose and Thorn and those kinds of things, things that have been around forever. I think the biggest thing is check in with your own level of anxiety because, you know, there's a boatload of research on your level of anxiety is contagious, basically. So you got to be sure you're okay. Um, Some kids are thrilled to be going back to school. Some kids are terrified to be going back to school. Some kids benefited from distance learning. Some kids didn't. You've had the opportunity to get to know your kids a little bit better, hopefully through this period of time. They're not the same. They're going to have different kinds of reactions. And you're just curious to start with about how they're reacting and your own anxiety is under control. What a great intention to set. And I love that you use the word curious. It is my favorite word. Um, And I think when we can show up with curiosity without an agenda, that is really serving our kids well. Anxiety gets in the way of curiosity. Like what happens? I mean, I'll have to think about this, but when we're not curious And I'm saying that's a really important thing, both for our kids going back to school, but in general for the world. 
what keeps us from being curious? We're afraid of the answer. We're afraid our kid might say, you know, it's terrible. I hate it. I feel like killing myself. Or our kid might say, I'm so glad to be out of here. You know, I can't stand hanging out with you guys anymore. I mean, I think it's always about anxiety. And to the extent to which we can hold that and hold an open point of view about our kids being different, having different experiences, changing over time, I think we serve our kids better. What a wonderful way to close out this conversation. Thank you. Uh, Listeners, again, Madeline's book is Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. And thank you again. Thanks for writing this book. Is there another book or are you done? Well, I I thought I was done, but I am sort of taken with these myths that um, people have. And if if I write again, that's what I might think about, but not right now. (laughs) All right. Well, you'll keep us posted and uh, back on if you write that book. But thank you so much. It was great to see you. And thanks for the conversation. Sure. Bye. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. You can find links to all the resources my guests and I discussed on the detailed show notes page. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform, editing, production, and more. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for considering. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk, and let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.